Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with modern-day jazz saxophonist John Arabicon. This is one busy jazz cat with a unique story and sound. He's got plenty of projects that are being released and just got a four-star review in Downbeat in September 2015 for his release of Behind the Sky. Over the course of our conversation, he talked about projects with Dave Douglas and Tom Harrell, along with soaking up all his good jazz experience in his 20s and 30s to get him ready to release albums in his 40s and 50s and well beyond. From the music flavor rich of Chicago, he has gone on to introduce the world to his very unique jazz sound that is pushing the craft into new and cool directions. Some even call it revolutionary. Please dig this interview, my friends. Thanks for taking some time to talk with me today. I appreciate it. No problem. I'm going to go ahead and dive right in. It looks like you got some good things going, in particular, a great review and downbeat this month. But I just want to ask you kind of generically, what's been going on with you lately? Well, it's been a busy season. Um, last week, my two records uh, that my record label at Ravagast Records, uh, my two records dropped. One is called Behind the Sky, and it features Tom Harrell, and Luis Perdomo, Yasushi Nakamura, and Rudy Royston. And it's 11 of my more straight-ahead jazz tunes that I've written over the last couple of years. And then the other record is called In Action is in Action, and it's a an ex- highly experimental solo Sopranino saxophone record. So those two things are pretty wide on the opposite ends of the spectrum there, but um, they both represent aspects of the music that I love. So I'm proud to release them at the same time. And uh, simultaneously, uh, in October, I'm on three other records as a sideman um, that are all dropping in, in different times in October. The first is Dave Douglas, uh, Dave Douglas's new one with his quintet um, that I'm in with Matt Mitchell and Rudy Royston and Linda O. And that's called Brazen Heart. And then Most of the Other People Do the Killing has a record coming out where I play all alto for the first time in that band for about like eight or nine years ago. That's called Ma Chunk. And uh, finally, there's a Barry Altschul Freedom Factor record that's coming out called Tales of the Unforeseen on Tomb Records, and that's coming out at the end of October. So I'm really excited. This is kind of a coalescence of all these different projects I've been a part of for the last couple of years, and it just so happens that they're all coming out around the same time. <laughs> That's cool, man. That's a, that's a good problem to have, for sure. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> so let me go back to the lineage of your life here. Where were you born and raised? I was born in Chicago, in the suburbs of Chicago, um, and grew up there, and I went to school at DePaul University in the city of Chicago, and got an undergraduate degree there, and then hung out in Chicago for a year after that, and taught lessons, and played a lot of gigs. Um, and then decided to move to New York and study with Dick Oates and I had a school of music. Very cool. So what was it like growing up in Chicago? Did you see a lot of really good jazz? What was the vibe like there to grow up for a jazz musician? Well, you know, I didn't really get into jazz necessarily until my junior or senior year of high school. And by then, I had started going into the city to see some music. I went to Vaughn Freeman's uh, Tuesday night jam session at the New Apartment Lounge many, many times. Um, I went to the Velvet Lounge and hung out with Fred Anderson. I'd go to Andy's and hang out with Craig Fishman and, and more straight-ahead players. So Chicago was a was a great place to grow up because there were so many different styles, different types of music. 
And almost every single one of them was really uh, supportive to bring you in and, and show you the ropes. So by the time I left Chicago, I was playing different big band gigs every week, different small groups, you know, straight-ahead jazz music, um, really experimental things. Um, and I was in a Brazilian group. There was all people from Sao Paulo and me. So, you know, I got I got a lot of chances to play a lot of different kinds of music. And for me, it just meant more homework because I, I had to go and study each of those kinds of music and try to learn how to play them authentically to keep playing those gigs. Very cool. So as a kid, did you grow up when you were when – when you were a kid, did you think you were going to grow up and become a jazz musician? What was your dream? <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think that I was going to be a musician, but there is some music in my family, and we, I always did get have a good time when, when music things would come up or we'd go see concerts or things like that. So music was always a part of my life. I wasn't sure if I wanted to dive right in and become a musician, and that definitely took time probably – so the, right when I was finishing up my undergraduate degree, I, I decided, you know what, maybe I should should go for this. Yeah, that's cool. So, you know, your music is really pushing several kinds of different envelopes. It's really, um, there, there's been terms that have been thrown around about who you are. Do you view yourself as a revolutionary in the jazz craft? <laughs> um, I, you know, I think that, that kind of thing is, is left for other people to decide and history to decide. But what I do think is important is to follow your ideas and be true to yourself. And if you enjoy a particular kind of music, pursue it and, and, you know, not try to sell out and, and just do stuff for money or fame. I, I do believe in that. So, you know, it just so happens that my interests are pretty wide ranging and that I don't mind uh, putting my neck out there to, support my my wide range of interests and pursue them and so i think a lot of musicians and especially in, in america and especially in the jazz scene today are either afraid to uh pursue other things or they're so deeply entrenched in whatever they're doing that they don't they're not interested in other things so in that, in that aspect i guess i am a little bit different than, than other jazz musicians in the scene but as far as being a revolutionary i think that's i think only time and history can tell that kind of stuff yeah, absolutely. So just in the first question that I asked you, you threw out some pretty heavy names in the world of jazz to <laughs> gigging with, like Dave Douglas and Tom Harrell. What is it like to share the stage and watch those practitioners of jazz that have been so heavy for so long to be around that energy? What's it like for you? Oh, man, I mean, that's a it's a dream come true to get to play with people like Dave Douglas and Tom Harrell and Barry Altschul. You know, these are people that I, when I finally did get super interested in jazz in high school, you know, Dave Douglas's quintet was like a huge touring force in America. And so I definitely followed that group. My first real, one of the first records that I loved uh, that was a little bit more pushing the envelope um, was Dave Holland's Conference of the Birds. And so Barry Altschul was on that. And I, at the time, I just remember being like, who, who is that? i got to play with that person. Just the way that he combines the drum set and the percussion and the one seamless thing, that's, um, that's a concept I had never thought of. And then, you know, uh, through Joe Lovano, his quartets that Tom Harrell plays on one CD, on, you know, Tom plays the most beautiful, exquisite lines on that. So 
just to be able to share any kind of stage or recording session with people that are older than you and that have pursued this music for way longer than you, you can you can learn so much on and off the bandstand from people like that. And in the last couple of years, I've been blessed to be able to play with people in that of that caliber. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's been really good for you in your life is that you've gotten a lot of awards. You were the winner of the OA Thelonious Month saxophone competition. You've been mm-hmm. a downbeat as, as one of the top picks for a while. In 2012, mm-hmm. you won the awards from the National Association of Philippines. I'm not going to go through all of them, but you've got a lot of awards. Was there one that you got that you thought, wow, this is really cool? Maybe one of the early ones or one of them that just kind of hit you off guard? Uh, well, you know, the, the Thelonious Monk one in 2008 was a pretty pretty surprising win for myself. You know, it was, I got selected to be in the semifinals for that, and I didn't think much about winning or pers- think about pursuing winning. I just wanted to play what, how I play, and the big thing was to get to hang out with Wayne Shorter and Herbie Hancock and David Sanchez and Greg Osby and Jimmy Heath, and Jay and I were bloomed that weekend. So, uh, winning it was a... Uh, surprise and has definitely helped my career and helped solidify some ideas that where I was coming from and what I want my music to be. So that was a pretty big award for me. So you've obviously played around a lot of big names, been around a lot of places around the country. Who has taught you the most about music? Who has taught me the most about music? Wow. That's a great question. Um, well, recently, um, as far as I had a great high school teacher who really put me on the right track. Uh, my first improv teacher named Greg Fishman was instrumental in teaching me about music theory and, you know, standards and functional harmony. But as far as being on the bandstand and learning through them that way, I've had a long time relationship with uh, Barry Altschul, the drummer, and we've been playing on it pretty regularly for five or six years now. And we've done several tours, both under my name and his. And that's a lot of road time and a lot of time for stories. And he's always open to answering my questions about different musicians that he's played with and different scenes from the New York and European uh, scenes from, you know, basically from the 60s until today. So I've learned a lot from him. He's always been really open to telling me, like, okay, well, you're doing this a lot. Maybe you should try to do this. Maybe this would help serve the music more. And so he's been a huge influence on me. Um, and someone like Dave Douglas, too, I've been touring with him for the last couple of years. Um, but I've just been hanging out with Barry for a little bit longer. So there's been more opportunities for some growth and stories there. Yeah. So, at the end of this proverbial day, who would you consider your jazz heroes? Wow. Um, wow, personal music heroes, I think it's, it depends. I, I guess I'm, my music is about inclusivity, I've realized recently, and that means not only the music that I present, but the music that I'm trying to listen to. So, um, I am influenced just as much by Evan Parker and Roscoe Mitchell and people like that, Anthony Braxton, John Zorn, Ned Rothenberg. I'm influenced influenced by them as much as John Coltrane and Sonny Rollins, Cannonball Adderley, Dexter Gordon, Coleman Hawkins, and Lester Young. 
and wait shorter. So I'm trying to, uh, I, my interests just happen to, you know, I happen to be curious about, well, how do, how does Roscoe get that sound out of a soprano or a sopranino saxophone? And how does Muhal Richard Abrams put together this composition to make, to get the results that he wants out of his players? And I'm in, as interested in that as much as what is Coltrane doing on transition that makes it so unique. I'm going to whittle this answer down that you gave me down a little bit more. Let's say you have the opportunity to go back in history and view a performance by a jazz musician. Where would you go, and who would you want to see live? Uh, I only get one chance. <laughs> no, let's 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 do two or three. That 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 would be a good handful. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So, I mean, there's so many, there's so many to pick. I would, if I could. Uh, that's a really great question. <laughs> I would want to be, I would want to be at a Coleman Hawkins performance where he's at, you know, right around the time where the famous Body and Soul 1939, when that came out. I would want to be at a performance of his there just to see his power and his grace and his beauty and be up close and feel that sound right there. So I'd want to be, I'd want to witness something like that. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I'd want to be at in Graz, Austria in the fall in 1962 to catch the Coltrane Quartet play Autumn Leaves. The one time yeah. they played it live in Graz because I would want to at least try to find out why they played it that day. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only time they played it, and Coltrane takes one of my favorite solos on that tune and of his career on soprano on that. And I just would want to know why they chose, like what was the reason or what was the story behind them choosing to to play that tune that particular time and never again. Yeah. So that would be that would be <laughs> that would be one thing for sure. Yeah, that would be nice, man. Um, you know. Miles Davis said it took him a long time to find his inner voice. So my question to you is, when you think about the the music that you're putting out there into the world, what do you mm -hmm. think your what do you think your voice is? How would you characterize the voice that you're projecting with your music? Well, I'm a firm believer in um the belief that a person's music really reflects their personality if a musician allows that to happen. So I've tried to put down all the barriers and try to let my personality shine through as much as possible. And, um, you know, on social media or whatever, and not necessarily about me all the time, but there'll be detractors and they'll talk about how this person doesn't have his own unique voice yet, blah, blah, blah. But I think it's all part of a process. It's all part of growing and experimenting and finding out who you are as a person and as a musician. And eventually they become one and the same so, you know, I did wait a while compared to some of my peers to put out my first record, but since then, I've tried to steadily put out different records of different aspects of things that I'm interested in, and hopefully I've grown from each of those things. And, I, you know, I feel like the 20s and 30s are a time to experiment and grow and gain as much input as possible, and maybe when you're in your 40s or even your 50s is the time that it all coalesces and becomes one unique voice that becomes you and you know maybe some people are blessed to not have to go through that long-term process and they've got their individual voice right away i feel like someone like sonny rollins or 
Johnny Griffin had their voices immediately, and they are really lucky. <laughs> but for the rest of us, I, I think a uh, constant and honest search for growth and finding out who you are, not only in music, but like finding out what books you like and what kind of paintings you like and um, things like that. I think that all helps and it all eventually leads to you becoming yourself. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. What's the greatest thing for you about waking up every day? (laughs) Um, Well, recently it's been getting a chance to get this music out there and talking to different people such as yourself and try to show where I'm coming from and uh, express my music and where, where I'm coming from with that. You know, I've been really excited about the Sopranino record in action is in action because it was a, it was an intimidation thing for me for over a decade. Uh, you know, I first heard uh, Anthony Braxton's four alto when I was in college and I just couldn't believe that there was a whole record of just saxophone and then went back and discovered that there was Colin, a Colin Hawkins solo saxophone performance. And then the floodgates opened, and there's and I found maybe a hundred or more solo saxophone recordings. And here, ever since then, I was like, you know, this is a really a challenging thing to do without a solo record and to try to say something that might be my own. And so that's been intimidating me for over a decade. And last year was the time to finally do it. But it took, I did, I really consistently all year worked on a solo saxophone performance with the idea that I would record it at the end of 2014. And so for that whole year, that really kept me waking up in the morning and like going towards something, you know, like it was, it was a undefined and wide open goal. And I was able to pursue that for an entire year. So I'm really, you know, that, that excitement has, has spilled into 2015. Uh, with getting the music out there, continuing to do some solo saxophone things, and continue to work in, on other aspects of my music to try to help that grow. So with this watershed moment of a lot of albums coming out for you and just how you describe your 20s and 30s learning and your 40s and 50s releasing albums, let's say we get together in 20 years and we start talking, and I say, look, what's been going on with you lately? What are you going to want to tell me is happening? <laughs> um, I'm going to hopefully say that we can trace back to the mid-2000s, all these projects that I've been doing, and hopefully a bunch of them will continue, um, and you'll see growth within each of those projects, and hopefully the amount of people that I get to play with, both older and my age and younger than me, all three of those things, will continue to grow, and I as of this year and a little bit last year, I've started writing a little bit more seriously, um, studying different composers and starting to put more effort into the composition aspects of what I'm doing. So hopefully in 20 years, there'll be a lot more variety with uh, ensemble types and musicians and like maybe even orchestral or larger ensemble palettes that, that I've been able to incorporate into some of my music. Cool. Why do you love jazz? Well, I love, you know what I love about jazz is the freedom and uh, in what I find to be its ideal form, the democracy and equal say from all the members. Um, it's a, it's, you know, it's a very, it's a social music and it's a way to get your ideas across 
and hopefully not be judged by it, but if you put in time and effort and thought into what you're trying to say with your music, it's a great platform to meet with like-minded individuals and uh, get your thoughts out there. That's beautiful, man. Thanks for opening up with me, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for taking time to listen to the music. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in Chicago, New York, KC, and spots all over the world giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to John for his music, vision, honesty, and that blend of jazz he gives us. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store or visit the neonjazz.blogspot.com for all things Neon Jazz. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.